You're listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderlin, New York. Now here's Pastor Sean. Uh, last week, I, I shared with the youth that part of my childhood, I grew up, I lived right next door to the, to the church. My dad was a pastor, and we lived in the parsonage. And so, I mean, there was literally just a small yard between us and the church, which is kind of good and bad if you're a pastor. Uh, it's awesome if you're a kid, because that meant I had a humongous parking lot I could ride my bike in. There wasn't any traffic during the week. I had lots of land that I could, you know, roam around in, and it was just, it was great. And I remember one day riding my bike around the big parking lot, and I uh, was kind of minding my own business, and all of a sudden, I just had felt this really huge crash right on top of my head, and it knocked me right off my bike, knocked me right to the ground. And I looked back to see what happened, and I didn't realize it, but our, our church had two volleyball nets. They were, not, they were not cemented or in the ground. They had actually taken big steel pole street signs, like the commercial kind of signs, and they had cemented them into wheels, so they were portable. And, uh, and they just had wheeled them close together, and the net was draped between it, and I had ridden my bike through it. But what I didn't realize is, is my pedal had caught one of the nets and had pulled that sharp that sign right on top of me I just it split my head open and just you know immediately like oh my goodness and you know ran to my mind I was probably fourth fifth grade I don't know something like that and you know when you're a little kid everything's dramatic I'm like oh no my brains are going to come out you know I'm going to bleed to death or whatever and immediately my parents take a look and they're like kind of when you're a kid and you see your parents kind of do one of these you kind of realize oh this really is bad and you know, I, my dad, we got in the car, and it's a little surreal, but, you know, was, again, you're a little kid, and you're like, my dad's like, here, hold this. And I'm like, I'm not a nurse, you know, like, I've got to hold myself. We're driving to the emergency room, you know, and then the, the doctor looks at it and pulls out the needle, and, and I'm just like, I'm like, man, I hope he doesn't hit my brain. You know, I didn't know how. I still, you medical people can tell me, I don't know why needles have to be this long, and they only go in you that big, that much. But anyway, and anyhow, long, long story short, You know, when the doctor looked at me, and the doctor, he just examined my head wound. I imagine, I don't remember all the details, I imagine he kind of checked for a concussion and probably, you know, was looking in my eyes and that kind of deal, follow me or whatever they do. But he didn't ask me to stick out my leg and like, hey, can I check your big toe? Can you take your shoes off? Can you bend your leg? You know, he he didn't care about 99% of my body. He just wanted to look where I had trauma. And some of you are probably like, Sean, now that you've told us the story, it makes a lot of sense. We understand why you are the way you are. So we can have more sympathy for you. I tell that story to say this. We're walking, as you know this, through four or five weeks of just talking a lot about sin, right? I want us to have a perspective here. When we are looking at sin, and we read through a laundry list of things, things that afterwards were just like, oh my goodness, last week, and we're talking about how awful things are, and we're gonna, we're not done, we've got a couple more miles to go yet still in this story. I want us to have the perspective. What Paul is doing is not giving us a medical assessment of our entire life, all right? The doctor would have been like, Sean, you look like a healthy, okay, reasonably active 11-year-old, 12-year-old, right? He wasn't worried about how my hand was functioning, my arms and knees. Like, I was fine, you know, all of it. But he's like, you got a really big problem here, and I needed to fix it. This is what Paul is doing with us. As we walk through this, sometimes we as Christians miss this a little bit. We are all sinners, and our whole life is tainted with sin for sure. 
But that doesn't mean that as people, that the people that we walk around, doesn't mean that they along the way don't do some good things and don't do good things. Doesn't mean that that every person is bad as they could possibly be. That's why the 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 convicted murderer on death row, their mom will say, "But they were a good little boy." Well, they were a good little boy to them, you know, and they remember those. But yeah, there were some other things over here that aren't so good. So Paul is focusing like a good spiritual doctor on, oh my goodness, your head is split wide open. We need to deal with it because this is terminal. So keep a perspective as we look through this. We walk through a whole bunch of things. Just because people are sinners doesn't mean that everything that they've ever done is awful and atrocious. It doesn't mean and along the way that they are... Um, not worthwhile, that they're worthless, doesn't mean that you and I struggle along those things. Sin is in all of our life. We are all uh, stricken in every way with sin, but there, we, none of us are as sinful as we could be. None of us have gone as deep as we could be. Everything has been tainted by sin, and so I just want to kind of have a little bit of perspective as we walk through that this morning. So I want today, we talked a lot about kind of the free fall right of, into sin. We talked about the splat last week. And uh, this week, I want to talk about what happens after. What are the consequences? What's the after effect after we've lived in this life in this way? Paul says this in, in Romans chapter 2. He starts out by saying this. He says, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, from passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. I briefly mentioned that last week. Paul is saying, guys, don't you look down your nose at other people doing stuff. You've done it too. We are all guilty in this. In verse 2, he says this, We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice repeatedly, practice habitually such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Why do you think God's judgment, he's saying, is going to come to those people over there and not to you? You're doing the exact same stuff. What, what's wrong with you? That's not the way this works. Or in verse 4, Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You think that just because your life's going okay and somebody else's is bad and you see maybe the consequences of sin and what's going on in their life and you're like, well, I'm off scot-free, everything's good. It's like, why are you presuming on God's temporary mercy to you because He's trying to lead you to repentance. He's trying to lead you to change in your life. He says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, your, your heart that's not responsive, that's not turning away from sin, but because of that hardness in your heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one, in verse 6, to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey in righteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. And here's a big bottom line. For God shows no partiality. 
I want to share with you three things this morning. The universality, the universality of sin, the universality of judgment, and the impartiality of God. What Paul is selling us this morning, he's trying to set the stage, as we've talked about it, why the gospel is such good news, why it should matter, why it's the biggest thing to us. And what he's telling us is because this sin disease, it's in all of our hearts, it's universal. He unpacked in depth, as we talked about the last couple of weeks, just that free fall of sin and the, gave us a laundry list of all these things on top of all the sexual sins and even in the homosexuality that he talked about. He gives us this list of you know, evil and unrighteousness and covetousness and murder and envy and strife and deceit and gossiping and slandering and hating God and insolent, like the prideful. He goes through all of these things and he says, guys, you are doing this exact same things. You see, it's not, it's not they, it's not those people, it's not those guys over there, it's not them, it's we. We have all uh, walked down that road and have all received that. You know, one of the prime ways that the sinful human heart deflects consequences of sin is by focusing on somebody else. One of the prime ways when we start feeling guilty or we start feeling a little bit of heat, like accountability for us doing something wrong, one of the prime ways that we can start feeling a little better about ourselves is to look, is to find somebody else who's worse in our mind, to think about what they're doing. When we're looking in shocked and about all of the awful things there, then all of a sudden we're just, we're, we start feeling good about ourselves, deflecting from our own actions, our own responsibility, and our own behavior while focusing on somebody else's is a prime thing that you and I have all done to make ourselves feel better. And Paul says, why are you doing that? Why are you judging and fixating somebody else? We did it as kids, didn't we? I won't talk about the kids today. What about the kids yesterday? You did it and I did it. When we started getting in trouble with mom and dad, well, look at what they did. You know, you start, well, what about them? Peter did it when Jesus was talking to Peter. He made him breakfast after the resurrection, and Jesus is kind of leaning in on him when he denied him. And Peter finally was like, well, what about that guy? What about him? And Jesus is like, leave him alone. I'm talking to you, son. I'm dealing with your heart. The sinful heart will do anything it can to get the spotlight off of its own soul, and you and I are good at it. And Paul is trying to warn us to say, be careful. Be careful when you're looking at other people's stuff because you're busy looking over there and you're blowing by all the things that God is trying to do in your own heart and your own life. And in God's eyes, all of these things, as we talked about, are equal. They're all the same. And the judgment of God is God sits as our judge and He weighs in and looks and looks at everything He sees. He's like, yeah, that's wrong, that's wrong. And it's all equal. It's all equally offensive to God. Every bit of it. There's not higher or lesser or lower as we talked about and as our group this past week we talked about is it's from God's perspective it's all bad. And I want you to notice one piece with this in verse 1. If you didn't pick up on it, it's subtle but it's significant. Paul is writing to people who practice these things. I don't know what translation you're using but at the end of verse 1 it says you, the judge, practice the very same things. Verse 2, he talks about those who practice 
such things. You've heard the whole the old adage, practice makes perfect, which is not quite true. Perfect practice makes perfect. You know, if you're in the sports, you can practice the wrong thing and learn to do something the wrong way, and it doesn't make perfect. It makes perfectly imperfect, if you will. But what Paul is saying here is that you're do those individuals and you are doing constantly, habitually, it's ongoing. It's like practice. It's like you're taking batting practice with your sin. It's not one gossip, it's constantly gossiping. It's not one prideful moment, it's constantly prideful. He's, he's talking about a life that's characterized by that. So we are all in that same boat. We are habitually go back to those things. Now, we know later on, and we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves in Romans, and it's the challenge that's such an incredible book. I wish we could keep all the chapters in our mind, you know, from week to week, but we're going to be months before we hit this reality. But in our lives, our lifestyle is evidence of where we really are. We're going to talk a little bit about that more in a minute. And those individuals, when they really have surrendered their life to Jesus and have are born again and have received the Lord of heaven in their lives, there is a change that happens. And there is a continual, ongoing change in our life so that we look back in the rearview mirror and there is not a habitual practice over time of these things. But Paul is telling us, as our life before Jesus, this is it, is it is a constant ongoing. If you've ever thought, why do I keep doing this? I know that it's not right. I don't want to do it. I'm not even fully sure how I end up when it goes. It just hits and I go down that road. That's what he was talking about. It's a, the ongoing habituation of sin in our life. And it, he says, we're without excuse that all of us have been born and have that reality in our soul. Every single one of us. Second thing I want you to notice, not only the universality of sin, but the universality of, of God's judgment with that. The things, the laundry list last week applies to all of us, and it's only a sampling. The list could be so long, it just would keep going on and on and on. And that's the character of our life. And the life, if you will, after that sin is God's judgment. That's what Paul is reminding us in verse 2. He says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. We know. There's God looks at all of this and He judges us. We're not each other's judge. The God of heaven is our judge. And He rightfully, appropriately, justly, in a holy way, measures out judgment appropriate to the things that we have done. That's what He was talking about back a couple of weeks ago in verse 18 of chapter 1. He said, The wrath of God's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. That's why last week at verse 32, I didn't have time to focus on it, but at the end of chapter 1, he says, though they know God's righteous decree, those that practice habitually that such things deserve to die. And they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. You see, we earn the judgment of God on our soul through our sin. That is not a popular concept today. That is not a common thing. People want to not have to be responsible for their actions and for their behaviors. I wanted that. I wanted to get off and get away with stuff, right? I still like to get off with a warning if I get pulled over and I'm speeding. I'm like, oh, thank you, officer. I really didn't want to pay that ticket. 
We like that. We don't want to be held accountable. But God in heaven rightfully dispenses and gives out judgment, punishment for all those. I mean, how else? It's the, the natural conclusion when there is a recognition that one God is holy in heaven, oversees the whole world, and He's made this world perfect and good without sin. And we have universally, all of us, just absolutely messed it up and destroyed it and in people's lives and the carnage and the chaos in the middle of it. And God who knows everything and who's all-powerful and who's all-present means we can't get away with a single thing. He knows exactly what's going on and what we've done and the intentions and motives in our heart, whether we see reality or not, whether we fooled our own selves and kind of changed reality to make ourselves feel better. But He's a holy God and a just God who brings to bear all of those things toward us. That is a really uncomfortable reality. That is a scary reality, but it is a universal judgment that comes toward us and towards individuals that practice such things. I want us to recognize that it is a blessing for God to be telling us this. You know, sometimes people talk about, you know, hard preaching or hard things in the Bible or, oh, they're stern or whatever. I hope that as you see us at River, we're trying to share difficult things, but we try not to be difficult along the way as we share it. We try to provide genuine hope that we're trying to help us all to deal with reality. Hey, the patient's on the table. The head is split wide open. There's bleeding that's going on, and it could be worse, but we got to dive into it to bring some healing and fix this thing. But it's a blessing that God tells us to us because remember just a couple of weeks ago, the problem happens is when we put God in the rearview mirror, we kind of put God on a shelf. We stop paying attention to Him. We stop giving gratitude toward Him. We stop honoring Him. We start doing our own thing. And we go down a really scary world. And we start living life ourselves and our thinking gets corrupted. Our hearts becomes darkened. The next thing you know, it, we're following false gods. In fact, we're reinventing who God is and creating our own thing. And then we go down this trail, and when we get into all kinds of sin, we talked about all of that last week and become even more hardened in those sin. It's a blessing for God to say, Whoa, whoa, whoa! Don't do that. That's dangerous. Don't drive 100 miles an hour toward that brick wall. That's bad. You're going to get hurt. Whoa! Here's a reality. I'm doing it to be a blessing to you, not to be a curse, not to offend, but to, to help you to wake up and to realize that there, is, there are ramifications to our actions. There's a reality that we cannot escape. In fact, he challenges us to be careful with that and to not step on a, a make a second mistake as to not just assume that because we've sinned and done these things wrong that we feel bad for and nothing happens. We should not assume that we're getting away with it. We shouldn't just assume that, well, everything's good. Look, God's blessed me. Look at these good things. No, that is not a reality. Look at what he says. He says, don't presume, or do you presume, in verse 4, on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. God on one hand says, whoa, whoa, whoa! 
This is dangerous. And on the other hand, he says, but I still love you. And I'm giving you your life today. And you're still experiencing my mercy and grace that even though you've done these horrendous things, I'm not calling you to account today because I'm giving you time. I'm giving you an opportunity to turn toward me because I want you to step back and to say, wow, I deserved to die because of that. That was atrocious and awful. I deserve absolutely from God to put His heavy hand on me and to crush me. But when I got up in the morning, the sun was shining, the birds were singing, and instead of what we do as people, I got away with that one. Woo-hoo. There should be an inner conviction of our soul that the God of heaven sees it, He saw it, and I want more of that grace and that forgiveness. It should be a humbling to us that God would be even more merciful. Have you ever done something wrong before that you were dead to rights wrong and went to the person, maybe apologized to them or to the situation? I don't know if it was a boss or family or spouse or parents, whatever. But And then when you're genuinely sorry, and you apologize and work through that. And that person, rather than just judging you and condemning you, gives you even more grace and mercy in that. Is that not humbling to you when you realize you've received even more and beyond? That's what Paul is saying. Is like we should recognize that when we do this wrong, it's not that God doesn't care when we do wrong now in this life. But instead, what God's trying to do is to lead people to see the goodness and the graciousness of a God. And too often, we as people presume upon that, think that we can get away with it. Yeah, I don't know, I, I used this illustration a number of weeks ago, but last summer there was a couple of guys that caught, got, got caught cheating in a fishing tournament. They put weights inside several walleye, and there's big money in that. you got to be a really good fisherman or woman or whatever the politically correct word is these days to, 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 to win those tournaments. But So they stuffed them, all kinds of fish, and the person, the guy that was weighing them in was like, hmm, this one's a little heavier than it should be. This one is too. They cut them open, so they were cheating. Well, I just read a story that one of those guys just recently gave his son, his 18-year-old son, a, a fake $100 bill. Not like a legitimate counterfeit, you know, like, like mob kind of counterfeit, but one that was designed for movie props. And right on it said, you know, not for legal tender, for movie purposes, theatrical purposes, whatever the word is. And, uh, and he gave it his son to spend at a bowling alley. Now, you talk about incompetent bad guys. Like, it says right on it. Why would you be so dumb to do that? And, uh, and slipped the $100 for him to go with his buddies to go bowling that night. And the, the text message, and I read it like he, to his dad, like, Dad, it worked. Give me another one. You know, hey, you want to come bowling too? So dad cheating, fishing, cheating, turning around, like thinking just can get away. And now, by the way, that's how generational sin happens, passing it on to the kids. And they're all in trouble for passing fake money. You see, instead of realizing that wow, I actually got a chance to be awake today and have freedom that I didn't deserve to lead to repentance. We all have done that. 
exact same thing, presume that, well, I got away with that. Well, it's not so bad. God must love me. God thinks I'm a good guy. I'm not that bad. No. The reason that you and I are not all in the grave standing before God, being judged by Him the moment we sin is because of the mercy of God that He is trying to give us space to finally come to our senses, to, to recognize that His holy hand is reaching down to us so that we can be born again and we can be forgiven of our sins and experience that salvation. The judgment of God is universal and it's coming. It's upon us now, but we, it's being delayed because God loves us that much. But it is absolutely coming. The real problem with us is that from our perspective, from God's perspective, is that our heart is hardened. That's what he says in verse 5. He says, but because you're hard and you're impenitent, or your heart that's not turning and be, turning away from sin, your heart is hardened. You're storing up more and more wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when it should be revealed. You see, you and I are accruing, not just in our savings accounts, not just whatever interest in mortgage, but we are accruing an eternity based on our life here today. Every single day, every single day it is going on. We're accruing that. And sin has a corrosive and a hardening effect on the soul. Sin will always harden the heart unless the heart of the human, the person that has sinned, begins to repent and to realize that it's done wrong and ask and seek forgiveness. That softens it. But when you and I think we get away with something and we blow it off, well, it wasn't that bad. Our heart doesn't stay neutral. It actually gets a little bit hardened. And the next time we do that and go down that road, which is usually not very long, it gets a little bit harder. It gets more and more hardened. And we as Christians should be trying to make our heart tender toward God, tender toward sin, tender toward the hope of heaven. And that should lead us the other direction instead of a hardening. If you pay attention to just the world around and even your own soul, you'll, you'll discover that hardening effect, a burnishing, if you will. And we keep, as we keep going down those roads and doing those things, all we're doing is accruing more and more wrath, more and more punishment that will eventually come due in our life. The third thing I want you to recognize is not just the universality of sin and of judgment, but the impartiality of God. There's hope in the middle of this reality. In verses 6 through 11, he talks about two completely different ways. He says, God will render, he will render in verse 6, to each one according to his works. Not according to somebody else's works, but according to your own. He's going to give us, do what we've earned based on our life. And there's, there's two. There's not one here, not multiple ones. There's just very clearly two things that as we live, we are, are accruing one direction, either the judgment of our sin or eternal blessing with Him forever. Those outcomes are just very, very specific. The first one is, is a practiced disobedience the first pathway, if you will. He says 
In verse 8, For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. These are the things that we've been talking about. You remember when the Bible said that they exchanged, the, in Romans 1, we talked two or three or four weeks ago, that they exchanged the truth of one God for a lie? Truth is not just something to be believed. It is something to be obeyed. That's what this verse says. They did not obey the truth. They do not obey the truth. You see, He's going back to that, that there's one God in heaven because there's one God in heaven. There are demands and a reaction and a life within us, an obedience. So truth is not just recognizing that there's a God in heaven of who is real and who is true and is there. And that all that the Bible talks about him is true, but it demands a response from us, an obedience to him. It is to be obeyed in our life. It is something that we are to believe in Him, and we are to follow Him, and we are to yield ourselves and surrender, beginning at some spot and continuing through the rest of our life, that there is a surrendering and an increasingly a yielding in our life to that obedience. And what's behind is our self-seeking, self-centered, wanting to do our own thing. That's what lies behind all sin, he says in verse 8. But we're those who are self-seeking. Just looking out for number one, doing your thing, doing what makes sense to you, doing the best you know how to do. And not obeying God, but instead obeying unrighteousness, all the things we talked about, there will be wrath and fury. I got to tell you, the whole topic of hell is not exciting to me. And it can be a hard one to swallow. But it is the full unleashing of God's wrath and fury for an eternity upon sinners. Hell is Satan, despite the popular conception, doesn't rule hell, and it's not where he's going to go around torturing people. God actually superintends and oversees. And that wrath and that fury will be unveiled, and it ought to scare us. It ought to scare us into salvation. It ought to scare us to say, whoa, I do deserve that, but I want something different. Can the different that he says, those individuals who pursue that lifestyle, they will eventually get that which they have wanted to get all along. They've been pursuing this. Okay, you're going to get the full fruit of it. Or those individuals, this is the second pathway that we all should follow, those who are patient and well-doing. Verse six, he says, but to, or verse seven, to those who by patience and well doing seek glory and honor and mortality, he will give eternal life. He changes those words in verse ten. He says, "Glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good." You see, the path that Paul is trying to say is, guys, we're all on that pathway because we've all sinned and we're all accruing that judgment of God. Unless there is a change in your world where you begin to seek the glory and the honor and the incorruption, the immortality that only comes through knowing Jesus Christ. That we do it by patient well-doing. 
He's not saying that we earn our salvation toward heaven. That, okay, just stop doing the bad and start doing them good. He's not saying, okay, stop. You've done a lot of bad things. Make sure you do a lot of good over here to make sure it kind of outweighs the bad. Make sure your balance sheet of life that the, you know, the withdrawals, that you've got enough uh, deposits that can outweigh the withdrawals. He's not talking about these spiritual scales in heaven. What he's saying is, is there's two characteristics of life. Either you know Jesus and He's forgiven you of your sins and you've turned away from your sins and received Him as Lord and Savior of your life because you are seeking eternal life and because you're seeking honor instead of a life of shame and all the things we talked about last week, you realize I have been shameful. I want some honor. I want to be different in the middle of that. I don't want to be self-seeking. I want to be God-seeking that all comes when we surrender to Jesus. That's what he just talked about in Romans 1.16. I did something I've never done before. I just, I, the challenge with walking through Romans, I've said multiple times and I will, it's just like we forget things so quickly. Literally, I read from Romans 1.16 to this. It took me three minutes. Three minutes ago, this would have been read, had we been reading on publicly, Paul just said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. And when we believe and we surrender our life to Jesus, that surrendering belief, that's a seeking. And we're pursuing the honor. And we're pursuing that grace and that forgiveness in our life. And it changes us so that overall our life could be said to be one that is patiently pursuing good, doing well. Because it changes us. It's it's a test, if you will, of our salvation. It's the blood of Jesus that forgives us. God's grace to us that through the vehicle of our of repentance and faith that we believe. But there's always the results of a changed life on the back end. That's why we love that we're all about that life change. And it, it means you and I have to patiently pursue doing good things. You know, the Bible is so precise and has so many good things in it to say, but you know, to me, that speaks so well to those who by patience and well-doing, patiently enduring hardship when it's not easy to do the right thing, when it's challenging to do good, challenging to do well. Not when it's easy, not when it's convenient, not when it fits our needs through the thick and thin. I bought, uh, I bought a number of trees. A couple of my kids are a little nervous this year. I don't like gardens that I plant and all that. I just don't like weeding and mulching and landscaping. I just, just have no interest. I can enjoy it just fine, but it's just not my thing. But I'm, I'm all about planting a tree that you do a little bit once, and then it's kind of there. You kind of just neglect it and ignore it. So we're, I bought like, like 25 Christmas trees. They're little guys. Because I kind of did the math. I'm like, man, I spend 50 bucks a year now, and you cut your own Christmas tree in a few years, it's probably going to be 100 bucks. Like, 10 years' time, that's like a grand. I'll take a grand every 10 years. And all I did was I paid like a dollar each for these little, these little, like, well, actually, they're kind of two feet tall, so we're going to plant them and let them grow. They can grow on my land as well as they can somebody else's, you know. And so, and I bought a couple of dwarf apple trees. So, I don't know anything about apples. They may not do any very good at all. In fact, that's probably what's going to be reality because you're supposed to like you know prune them and take care of aphids and all these pests and fertilize and thin. And so I will not be a very good apple farmer. I know that. 
But I know that there's some work to put in. Because I want some blessing to take out. And that's what this verse is telling us, guys. In our life with Jesus, we become a follower with Him that's humbling, that we, we yield ourselves to Him in surrendering faith, and He becomes Lord and Savior of our life. And that changes the trajectory of our life from an eternity of punishment, from a life of just habitually in sin, and ending, terminating in an eternity away from God in punishment, that puts us in a completely different trajectory to where we now have got to plant a lot of trees. Jesus saves us, but now we do well. And we have to do good because all our whole life we're pursuing something of honor. We before pursued shame, but now we're pursuing honor. Before we pursued self, now we're pursuing God. Before we lived for today and whatever we could get out of it, whatever made sense, and now we're pursuing an eternity. And that's the change that God brings into our life. That's the message of salvation that we give. So along the way, there's a number of things that hopefully have spoken to you in the middle of this, but you know, I'm excited about thinking about making it to heaven and what that will look like. And that's the path that we should all be on ourselves as well. And so... That means we hold forth eternal life to people in Guatemala and other countries and other nations. That means that we hold each other accountable as a church family to be pursuing that life. That means that we need to be careful about a hardened heart and other things in our life. And so whatever of those things that God has spoken in your heart this morning, respond to Him in that. Respond in that hope and that salvation and be thankful. Maybe you... God has been challenging you with the sin that you have. And maybe you feel like you've been skating and getting away from it. You need to realize you're not. And turn to God. Receive the Lord Jesus. And pursue Him. That's what a trajectory of our life ought to be about. 